Okay, ready? Spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. Oh no, do I have to? No, you don't. Okay, let's see what it is. Okay. Do you like books? I'm outlining a new writing project. Who wrote this book? Read it. Read it. Sometimes I'd write something. What are you writing? Have you written anything lately? I'm Amanda Stern, and this is Bookable. On today's show, spoiler alert. And that's a spoiler warning. Spoiler warning. Spoiler form. Yeah, spoilers. <laughs> spoiler warning. Have you ever noticed how closely people guard even the smallest details? Are you allowed to talk about anything? Um, there's really nothing that I can say they would absolutely kill me. But those details have a way of coming out anyway. What did I just say? You said Spider-Man's in space. Oh, that thing. Right, yeah, well, now you know. Now you know. <laughs> Sorry, Marvel. Whoop. So, yeah. Plot points are spoiled all the time. But what if talking about the structure of your work is the spoiler? Well, that's the predicament our guest today has found herself in. Yeah, that's fun because I've done so many interviews about the book where we were trying to kind of talk about it without talking about it. Oh, we're talking about the spoilers. Very, very difficult. Okay, well, should we start somewhere easy? Sure. Great. Please introduce yourself. I'm Susan Choi, and my book is Trust Exercise. Susan Choi. We're not giving anything away to say that Trust Exercise won the National Book Award for Fiction. It's propulsive reading. It's about love and sex and power and the betrayal between friends that they're never able to forget or something like that. I had started this as a short story, and then it got totally bloated. So I was like, yeah, just let's, let's just wind this up. This is like a story about young people in love. It does not have to get complicated. But it did, indeed, get complicated. Trust me. Okay, so let's start by talking about the characters in the first section. Tell us about Mr. Kingsley, Sarah, and David. So Mr. Kingsley is the um, drama teacher at Sarah and David's school, Kappa, the Citywide Academy for the Performing Arts. And he is charismatic and nurturing. He is uh, handsome, gay, so all the students can crush out on him, but also has this capacity to see the students the way they want to be seen, or at least that's the way they feel. And so he exercises this enormous sort of gravitational pull over the theater students. And Sarah and David are two of the theater students. When the book opens, it is their sophomore year. And um, freshman year, they had a thing, one of those unspoken things. And in between freshman and sophomore year over the summer, they have acted on the thing. And so they walk into school at the beginning of sophomore year with this thing kind of throbbing between them. Um, And it goes wrong immediately. From Trust Exercise, Section 1. This was how David first noticed Sarah, her aura of knowledge. He sometimes saw her laughing with Mr. Kingsley, and their laughter seemed shared on the same remote plane. David envied this, as did everyone else, 
and he wanted to annex that plane for himself. When I was a high school student, there was not a very sophisticated understanding of of the weird power stuff that goes on in classrooms, and especially in high school classrooms, where students start seeming like adults, but mm-hmm. aren't adults, right? Yeah. They're, they're like, their independence and their autonomy leads you, leads one, if one is an adult, to um, maybe treat them in a manner that actually is completely inappropriate because they're children still. Right. Different kind of child, you know, bigger child with, like, different characteristics than, like, the 10-year-old child. But they're not 20. Right. In this high school that my book is set in, the difference between students and teachers is erased around the idea of being theater people. We're all theater people. No one really wants to admit that there's, like, a huge differential in the amount of power that the teacher has versus the amount of power that the student has. So like in high school, the power is uh, unequal for a million different reasons. You know, one of them is that the teacher is an adult and the Mm -hmm. student is a child, although they may be a very mature child who um, is able to fool themselves and others into the belief that they're an adult and can handle more than they should really be asked to. Um, And then there's like institutional power, obviously, that a teacher has over a student in any setting. And um, so I think it's that weird, that weird like collision between this huge difference in the amount of power that people are holding and these kind of like romantic notions that exist around being colleagues and being artists and being learners together that, that leads to like real confusion and also like kind of real catastrophe in some cases. Mm-hmm. And when I was writing this book, I was I was obsessed by all of these cases in which this kind of situation had led to catastrophic predation on really young people. Um, and often like really young people who at the time, because they fell for that romance of equality and, um, and you know, collegiality, believed themselves to be the equal of their teacher, you know, I'm 15 and my teacher is 45, but like we're, we're theater artists together and we're, you know, we're passionate about the same things. And so like going to bed together, that makes sense. No, it doesn't. It doesn't make sense. And, um, and it's all the worse that as a young person, you, you believe that it does because, you know, in part you lack the power of experience I mean, so there. So I, I think the educational setting is is quite fraught. <laughs> um, although, you know, also it's great, right? Education. I'm all for it. I'm not <laughs> saying it's bad. I'm just saying that it's like a very it's a very complicated social terrain. Yeah, it is. And I mean, the majority of the cases that you hear about are older men with younger girls. Yeah. You, although there's plenty of older men with younger people of either gender, but a lot of older men yes. and younger girls. And um, and these are often young women who um, are, you know, particularly gifted with intelligence and poise and maturity and, um, and which I find even more upsetting in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, that was part of what I wanted to get at with the character of Karen is that Karen is as an adult now. And she, I don't know if we've even gotten to this, but she, Karen is 
the, you know, the veteran and the survivor of one of these relationships. And she has a very hard time herself forgiving herself for what happened to her um, because she's still confused about how much of an adult she might have been at the time and still says, well, I think I chose. I chose it, so I can't really, I can't really kvetch now about how it went. She doesn't actually say kvetch. I just like saying it. So that's the first third, the first 131 pages. Um, <laughs> to be exact. To be precise. And then in the next section, we're introduced to someone else. This person's name is, quote, Karen, end quote. <laughs> um, yeah, Karen, quote, unquote. So Karen's about 30. She is a personal organizer. She lives alone. She's not married. She doesn't have kids. She has spent a lot of time doing and thinking about therapy. She is very angry. And she's angry at a couple of different different people. Um, and one of the people that she's angry at is her best friend from high school. And we meet her at a book signing where she's holding a copy of this book that she, she stopped reading on page 131, which turns out to be what we've just read, part one, which, of course, is just the first chunk of this book within a book um, that Karen has in her purse, um, was written by her ex-best friend from high school, quote-unquote Sarah. You realize this is the same Sarah, not in quotes, that you've already met. Karen comes in and says, everything that you've read is Sarah's version of events. Those weren't even our names, but fuck it, I'll just go by Karen because like, I can't really be bothered to change it. And also she's kind of reveling in what she sees as the insult of being named Karen, <laughs> um, because she thinks Karen is like a really unsexy, boring kind of girl with barrettes who didn't have a lot going for her name. And she's like, I can see right through why she named me Karen, but fine, I'll be Karen and she'll be Sarah. And so she proceeds to kind of partly demolish everything that we thought we knew about the world of this school, but but also partly bolster a lot of it. And you have to decide whether you believe Karen or not. And Karen is going to get her book signed. Quote-unquote, Karen is going to get her book signed by quote-unquote Sarah. And when quote-unquote Sarah sees Karen, Sarah is unsettled, deeply unsettled, like did not hope to see this person while on her book tour. In the first section, quote-unquote Karen, is not technically played by Karen, the character. She's dispersed. Like she, Sarah, has given Karen, quote-unquote, Karen's characteristics to other characters. Yeah, so Karen says. <laughs> That's what Karen tells us. Okay. Part, part two, Karen comes in and says, all those girls that the, the character of Sarah is friends with in the book, those are all me. But they're all me broken up into, like, my constituent parts. Like, one of them is me who was really good friends with Sarah, and one of them is me who, like, actually went to church, which everybody thought was really laughable. And so that's made into a separate kind of, you know, a highly pious Christian sort of loser character. Um, so Karen in part two comes in and says, like, that's all me. All those people are me. And also there's a Karen in part one. That's me also. And she's really angry. 
is really angry at Sarah. She's really angry at a lot of people, and, and she spends her section telling us why she's angry and also acting on her anger in a way that we hope she finds satisfying. And one of the things that she's really angry about is that sh- her perception is that Sarah alighted the truth Yeah. in section one. So yeah. she wrote a story that included, quote-unquote, Karen, without telling the actual, quote-unquote, truth about of what Karen, happened. Or Karen. about herself, is Karen's argument. Karen, Karen, at the end of that section, when Karen and Sarah are confronting each other and Karen says something to the effect of like, why would you write something that's so like the way it was but that isn't the way it was? Um, it's so convincing and yet it leaves out all the stuff that really matters, or at least the stuff that really matters to Karen. Um, and also maybe the stuff that really mattered to Sarah, or at least that's what Karen says. Mm-hmm. So we're left in this position. We just have no idea who to trust or what's reliable information. Yeah, there's no there's no bedrock answer, really. And I can't really give it as the author. I can more give it as a reader because I want to believe Karen She's so biased and angry. She's so pissed off, and she is really, really, um, she's really upfront about her biases and her anger. Unlike Sarah, who she accuses of sort of um, taking this fake stance as like an omniscient narrator. Like, Like Sarah has pretended to be like the objective God's eye narrator of our lives, but she has all these agendas that she's hidden. Like it's even more sinister when information pretends to be totally objective, but it's full of all these slants. So Karen's kind of accusing Sarah of being kind of an insidious storyteller when Karen's just like a balls out, super mad storyteller where she's like, I'm super mad. Here's what I'm mad about. So you have to believe me. Mm -hmm. And I'm inclined to, but you know, she's also, she's an extreme person. Maybe I'm falling for it. short break. When we come back, nope, not gonna tell ya. That would spoil it. Stick around. Welcome back to Bookable. I'm Amanda Stern, here with Susan Choi, author of Trust Exercise. Each of the book's three sections is distinct, and as we've already heard, section two completely rewrites what we thought we knew from part one. Well, in section three, our perspective shifts once again, and we meet a new character. So do you feel comfortable talking about Claire? Yeah, so this is, wow, what a, what a spoiler section this is. First of all, it's a different narrative voice in part three. The Claire section is in the omniscient third person, but no one comes along and like yanks the veil off and says like, this is just a podcast we found lying around. Like it's, the Claire section returns you to like the conventions of the novel, which are that we've removed this fourth wall to let you see into a realistic universe and you should believe the things that you see in the context of that universe. Obviously, fiction isn't true, but you know what I'm Mm -hmm. saying. And so the Claire story is told in that way. And Claire isn't someone who 
is aware of the history of hurts and betrayals and transgressions between this like knotted clustered group of group of people she has no idea who those people are and no idea that her origin lies within them um and i found claire kind of heartbreaking because she's an innocent like she's an innocent who wants to seek the truth about herself which we're in a position to worm out of this story but she isn't she might never be right she's a young woman she's you know like what mid to late 20s i can't even remember how old claire is she's something like 26 28 she's lost her mother and she's always known she was adopted she's always sort of wanted to know more and it's hard you know she loved her mom she loved her dad um, she felt really loved by them. So the fact that there's this part of her that can't give up wanting to know who her birth parents were, it's painful to her. Because mm-hmm. she's like, why should I want that? I shouldn't want more. I shouldn't want to know more. And so when we meet her, she's finally acting on that want because she's lost her mom. Uh, her mom dies young and suddenly, I mean, in her 60s. And Claire is sort of left reeling with all these unanswered questions. And now she she wants to try to get answers. And their answer is that she, we see her trying to obtain them. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the, the, things that, the things that Claire wants to know are things that we know. Right. If we put all the pieces together, we know. We're like, oh, I know what Claire's story is. But she doesn't. From Trust Exercise, Section 2. Don't you want to know how you come off in it? Don't you want to see how she depicts you? Karen asked. It's not me, he said. It's fiction. My turn to call bullshit. That whole thing about fiction not being the truth is a lie, she said. So I'm guessing you read it. The book ask so many questions, but one of them is, what is a novel? Can you yeah. answer that? What is a novel? Yeah, wh- wow, what a great question. I cannot, um, I can't, definitely can't answer it, but I'm so glad that you think that that is one of the questions posed. It's a question that I'm really interested by. I actually taught a course last year, um, two courses, both on this subject, where I was like, what is what is a novel? Anyway, what what, what is this supposed to be accomplishing? And um, I think the fact that I couldn't arrive at an answer got me really excited. I was really excited by the by the ways in which the novel feels like it. It's so capacious. Like there's just a lot. There's so much you can do. And um, you know, so like my answer to what a novel is is it is uh, it is a longish piece of prose writing, um, and. Beyond that, I'm like, anything goes. In this course that I taught that asked that question of, like, what a novel is or what should a novel be, we read all this stuff that I sort of, as I put together the list, became, like, more and more almost mischievously eclectic in what I was choosing. Because I was like, why not this? Why not that? Hey, maybe this is a novel, too. Because there were all these things that I was like, well, you call yourself a novel. So, all right. You know, it's like 
W.G. Sebald called his called his books novels, and they're not nonfiction. They're not memoir, but they're unlike anything mm-hmm. I had ever read before. Um, you know, in tone, like Rachel Cusk's work is really dissimilar to a lot of the novels that I've read. Um, but I really, really loved Outline when I read it. I was sort of blown away by that. So I think, you know, if my novel is effectively asking that question, it's so indebted to all of these other um, works that I have been reading and thinking about in the past maybe five years um, as I was wondering, like, you know, what what are novels supposed to do? And um, And I think that one of the things that was most exciting for me with this one was actually trying to work through that question in the form of the book itself, which was just an expansion of concerns from my four books leading up to this in which I always was really dedicated to the world of the story and the characters and all of those great things that make novels so much fun to read. But the question of like what the book itself was or what the form itself was, wasn't something that was on my mind. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, as I said, like that is something that's been on my mind thanks to like brilliant work by other writers that, um, that I've just loved both reading and teaching, talking to students about like, you know, what, what is this doing that's different from what other things do and how's it changing your expectations of what you want when you read? Susan Choi, author of Trust Exercise. It's published by Henry Holton Company and is available now. Bookable is a production of Loud Tree Media. I'm your host, Amanda Stern, five feet tall and that's not fiction. We're produced by me, Bo Friedlander, and Andrew Dunn, who also mixed and sound designed the show. Bo is Loudtree's editor-in-chief. Find us on the web at bookablepod.com, and go ahead, subscribe and rate us five stars on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. That's truly one of the best ways for other readers to find out about Bookable. My conversation with Susan gave me a lot of food for thought, but it turns out I forgot to give any thought to food. Is that your stomach? Uh-huh. Wow, I thought it was like the elevator. <laughs> that is an amazing noise. It's a very, like, austere noise. I have an austere growl. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's really funny. We should mic it separately. We should. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. That'll be to cover the spoilers. <laughs> this is Bookable.